We are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah, and all along we have seen that the task of rebuilding the wall, which Nehemiah was divinely dispatched to accomplish, had the primary purpose, it was the mission of that task to regrace the people of Jerusalem. Okay, they, they were living in disgrace because their city was in absolute ruins. And here's the deal. When Jerusalem was in ruins, God's glory was shrouded. With Jerusalem in ruins, the glory of God was shrouded. The non-believers could not look to the city and see God's power and might, and the inhabitants did not enjoy the blessings of his manifest presence. But with God's favor, Nehemiah's incredible leadership, and the people's dedication, the wall was rebuilt with astonishing Speed. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Here's what it says. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 52 days. Not only did they do the impossible, but they did it in 52 days. And when the work was complete, God's glory was once again shining like a light in the darkness, and his unshrouded glory had its inevitable effects. His people experienced his grace. They experienced the grace of his presence, his leadership, and his protection. It also had an effect on his enemies. They had to reckon with the truth that God was indeed the one true God, that there was no other God like him. In verse 16 of Nehemiah chapter 6, here's what it says. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, I love that phrase, lost their self-confidence. First, you don't anticipate identifying that with a nation, with a group of enemies, but that's what it says. And it literally means they fell much in their own eyes. All the surrounding nations, when they saw what God did, fell much in their own eyes. In other words, their high opinion of themselves and their gods shriveled away when God's glory was unshrouded, when it broke through as his children followed his vision. His glory broke through as his children, the people of Israel, chose to follow his leadership. Now it is critical to note that the enemies did not wither because they suddenly realized the substantial power of that group of people they had belittled all along. What does the text say? They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. With God's help, they were able to do what no one thought was possible, and that was the point all along. When God's children receive and cooperate with God's grace through sacrificial obedience, 
When God's children receive and cooperate with God's grace through sacrificial obedience, then their neighbors, our neighbors, their enemies, our enemies, will see God's glory. So when they saw the glory of God, their enemies lost heart knowing that if the Jews got back in sync with Yahweh, if they were experiencing his presence and thereby enjoying his empowerment, his grace, and his protection, their days of running amok in the promised land were done. They lost their confidence because, listen to this, their enemies lost their confidence, confidence because they saw and believed. The enemies saw what God did, and they believed. Now, they weren't followers, but they were believers who harbored no doubts about the power of God because they saw what everyone said could not be done. They saw that they built the wall. Now, we're moving along in the story, and what we would logically expect to see next was the wall builders having a great celebration, right? Like, yes, they weebled, they wobbled, but they didn't fall down. They persevered under God's vision and with God's enabling. They, the wall became reality, The wall became reality because God empowered the work of their hands. So, naturally, they would celebrate, right? I mean, that's next. We have a great work, we celebrate. But this is where the story goes off script a little bit. Because in chapter 7, and you can turn your Bibles to Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapter 7 and 8 today. Chapter 7 begins not with a party, but with an assessment. Okay, Nehemiah wants to know, he, he, he wants to know exactly where they stand. And what he finds is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4. Nehemiah 7, 4. Now the city was large and spacious. Remember, they're looking around, the walls having been rebuilt. The city was large and spacious, but... There were a few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Now, this is no surprise. No surprise. Everybody knows the history. The city had been ransacked by invaders, and many of the neighborhoods were just like the walls. They were in ruins. The houses had been raised by the invading armies. And, and by the way, large numbers of people had been taken captive and were no longer living in the city. But even if the people were present, Jerusalem was not yet ready for full occupation. Those were the facts. And rebuilding the wall didn't change the facts. As a matter of fact, not much changed at all. Think about it. The day after the wall was finished, they awoke in the exact same city with the exact same problems, minus one. 
okay? Their neighborhoods were like ghost towns. Their, their homes were condemned. The famine was still raging. The children were still hungry. Now the wall certainly gave them some hope and, and they were rising. They had hope and they were rising. They, they knew what they could do in God's power together. But other than that, they were really right where they started. Just the wall had been built. Now let's just take, let's take a break here for a moment. I want you to think about how analogous that is to our Christian journey. Th- think about, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, think about when you came to faith in Christ. After you accept Jesus as Savior and Lord and you receive the gracious gift of his forgiveness, the next day you woke up in the exact same place with the same circumstances in the same environment, the good and the bad. You still had to go to school. You still needed new tires. You still had to clean up your room or do the dishes. You still had family issues and perhaps even personal demons to deal with. Everything was the same minus one thing. You were connected with your creator, your sins were forgiven, and you knew where you would spend eternity. That's the, by by the way, it's a glorious byproduct of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You knew that with your sins forgiven, there was hope that you could rise. Coming to Christ is absolutely the best decision you will ever make. It is a momentous occasion. The scripture says the angels in heaven celebrate when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And it brings with it hope for a change. It is real. But it's also unrealized. You wake up in the same physical environment and circumstances you were in before your conversion. You have great potential. There is tremendous hope in Jesus. But it is unrealized potential, listen, until you are changed by the long walk of obedience with Christ, until you decide that you are going to follow him. So when we come to Christ, there is assurance that things are turned in the right direction. But all you've done is turned around. There's still a long way to go. Now that's what happened in Jerusalem. Okay, the, the wall gave them hope, but they obviously weren't out of the woods yet. They were moving in the right direction. And while Jerusalem's wall had been restored, the city was a long way from reclaiming its luster and realizing its mission as the city on the hill that beckoned all the world to believe. That's what Nehemiah concluded. What did he say? Jerusalem is a large and spacious place with walls for security. That was all great. It was really good. And it it gave 
the city great potential. They were on the verge of realizing God's vision for their city, but on the other hand, it was poorly populated, the houses were in shambles, and by any objective measure, they were not there yet. Long way to go. Now the rest of chapter seven, Nehemiah just collects data. Okay, he, he wants to get a true reading of their circumstances. What does he do? He actually, he counts people and he counts money. That's the way to all of chapter seven, is counting people and counting money. And as Nehemiah was doing his due diligence to assess their real place, the people disperse and go back home. All the people that had gathered together to build the walls left while Nehemiah was doing his audit. A few of them went to their homes in the city that they had put back together, and others, like the men of Tekoa that we talked about, went back home to their hometowns. Why? Because they had work to do. You remember, they neglected their personal affairs. This was the sacrificial obedience required to, to embrace God's mission. They neglected their personal affairs to rebuild the wall. Now, after five days, Nehemiah gets all the numbers sorted out. All the people come back together. They reconvene for a celebration. And what kind of celebration would it be? What would they do? How would they celebrate the work they did in God's power? Well, knowing that it was actually God who rebuilt the wall. By the way, the wall had been torn down for 152 years and no one had rebuilt it. So they knew God was involved. So knowing that God rebuilt the wall, they wanted a worship celebration. So what did they do? They had Ezra the priest bring his Bible and read it to ensure that God was the centerpiece of their celebration. Look at the end of chapter 7, the last sentence, verse 73. Chapter 7, verse 73, and we'll read on into chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns... All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. That's not like before water gate, like we know water gate. It's before there was a gate called water. Okay, before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And did y'all pick up on how long he read? Five to six hours. Think about that. I get like 35 minutes. Five to six hours. There's the reading of God's word. The whole affair was set up to be a day of worship and praise for the good, the great things that God had done. 
What had he done? He had liberated them from captivity. He made a way for them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He sent Nehemiah from the palace in Susa to rebuild the wall. It was all a tremendous first step to reclaiming their place in the world as the city on the hill. Reclaiming God's vision. It was an epic celebration. Until it wasn't. Look at verse 5. Let's see what happens. Ezra opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. And the Levites, yeah, I'm not going to try that. You can do it. Do I have any volunteers who want to read those names? The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Wait a minute. Do not mourn or weep. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. What in the world happened? Is that what you were expecting? They have this grand celebration and the people begin to weep? How did the day of celebration turn into a day of mourning. Well, let's think about what they were reading. The law of Moses, which is what Ezra was reading, established the covenant of God between God and his chosen people. Now, that covenant presented the children of Israel with a choice Okay, if they lived faithfully in obedience to God, in submission to his word, then God would be with them, he would bless them, and they would prosper in the promised land. The city of Jerusalem would be established for all time. That was God's promise if, if they chose to submit to God's word. But... The word goes on to say, Moses' law goes on to say, that if they break covenant by rebelling against his word, then God's hand of blessing would be withdrawn from them. They would ultimately fall victims to their enemies. The promised land would be occupied by others, and inevitably their cities and towns would be decimated. So guess what happened as they were reading God's word? They're looking around saying, oh, 
we're living in that reality. All this ruin is the fruit of our choices. Now, of course, God's word would go on to say that if they repented and they returned to God, they would be restored along with the land of promise. And the fact is, the fact is that in that moment, they were living in the reality of their repentance and God's restoration. That's what the wall building was all about. We are turning from our self-ruled way and we're turning toward God's way and we're going to do what God has called us to do. We're going to rebuild the wall. That's repentance. It's change of direction. And then God responded to their repentance with glorious restoration. His power was poured out on them and the wall was rebuilt. In that moment, in that moment, now this is critical to understand, that moment, they could have been celebrating that the restoration was underway. But they didn't. They were weeping and mourning. Why? Because they were looking around and coming to grips with the fact that the situation they woke up in, the empty city and all the ruin, was on them. It was a byproduct of their rebellion. It was a direct result of sin and the sin of the people, their people. Now in that moment, the weeping, the mourning, the inability to celebrate, they were facing two concerns that always paralyze people of faith. Kenny, okay, you're, you're going to want to hold on to this. There are two concerns that always paralyze people of faith. What were they? Guilt and worry. Guilt and worry. They were facing the guilt of their past. That's the direction guilt faces backwards. Why? Because we're guilty about something we have done. So they're facing the guilt of their past. The fact is that the city was in shambles because they had turned away from God. They decided they didn't trust God's way. They only trusted their way. So they said, you know what? We, we, he's not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. They rebelled and went their own way. The fruit of that rebellion was rotting around them. The city was in ruins. And they felt guilt. Guilt. They were also stricken by worry, which, by the way, faces the other direction. They were worried about their future. Remember Nehemiah's audit? Anyone who looked honestly at the numbers could see that they would have to have more people to fully restore the city. 
But where would those people come from? And where would they get the materials to rebuild their houses? And, and how were they going to feed their children in, in the midst of famine? What? The future was bleak. How could they ever rebuild? But God was faithful in rebuilding the wall. He was. But things were still a mess. They, they, they woke up right in the same spot. So what was happening? In guilt, they wept for the past. And in worry, they wept about the future. And they almost missed his glorious, faith-inspiring victory in the moment. See, guilt we look behind, worry we look ahead. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There, there's something for us to learn here. Guilt after repentance and restoration. Okay, listen closely. Guilt after repentance and restoration is never from God. See, they repented. They worked for restoration. They were cooperating with God. That's what God wants. He wants our fidelity in the moment. Wall building and completion showed repentance and restoration. Likewise, worry is never from God, no matter how you frame it. I'm not worried, I'm just concerned. Or are you obsessed? Did you know that both worry and guilt after forgiveness are forbidden in Scripture? You know why? Because they prove to be powerful enemies against our stewardship of the sacred moment. Of the moment where we can enjoy God's grace and God's presence. If we're living on either side of this moment, then we're missing God's presence. Wayne Dyer, in his book, Your Erroneous Zones, wrote these words. Guilt and worry are perhaps the most common forms of distress in our culture. With guilt... Listen, you focus on a past event, feel dejected or angry about something that you did or said, and use up your present moments being occupied with feelings about past behavior. With worry, you use up those valuable nows, obsessing about a future event. Whether you're looking backward or forward, the result is the same. Whether you're looking backward or forward, the result is the same. You're throwing away the present moment. And listen, 
It is in the present moment that God's glory, his life-changing, world-changing glory is revealed. Every time. The only way we can know and experience God's glory is to be present with God in this sacred moment. Now, guilt says I'm no good because of my past choices and I don't deserve God's grace or goodness. That's the problem. Sustained guilt says, listen, sustained guilt makes an idol of your sin. It makes an idol of sin. Sustained guilt that God has forgiven says that sin is more powerful than God. It is the choice to remain frozen in your sins and mistakes of the past. But that is totally contrary to the word of God. What does it say? When we are forgiven by our gracious, loving compassionate, faithful, heavenly Father. Our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Do you know how far that is? Never the twain shall meet. They are eradicated. That means in God's eyes, when we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and confessed our sins and established, celebrated the forgiveness that he graciously offers, in God's eyes, that means my past does not limit my ability to walk with him in the present. Okay, that ought to bring great relief to all of us. Your past does not prohibit your ability to walk with God and enjoy his glory in the present. Now, listen, the past is a great teacher. We we don't want to waste the lessons of the past, but we dare not let our enemy tether us to the past and paralyze us in guilt. That can only make us miss the grace of the present moment that we have been given. Worry, as I said, is the same thing from the other direction. If guilt paralyzes us in the past because of the failure of the past... Worry paralyzes us in the present because of the potential problems of the future. We we say we're thankful for what God has done, but the question remains, will he do it again? God's always taken care of me. But I wonder if he'll do it again. Worry is concerned that God's goodness and faithfulness is, in fact, exhaustible. 
Is there a limit? Does he only have so much goodness to give me? Worry wonders if God has reached his limit. Worry and guilt steal our joy in the sacred moment that we inhabit. Why? Because we aren't present in the moment. We are sending ourselves back, and we're time travelers, moving back in time or forward in time. Now, without the joy that severs the chains of guilt and worry, we don't have the strength to trust and celebrate God in the moment and follow him obediently into the future. That's why Nehemiah broke into all this weeping and he had one more thing to say. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Nehemiah said, whoa, 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 whoa. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day, this moment, this sacred hour is holy to our God. Do not grieve. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When you are paralyzed by guilt in the past or you are paralyzed by worry about the future, if you want the strength to rise, to continue to rise in Christ, then you embrace his joy. The joy of the Lord is only found in this present moment. And it is always accessed through praise and thanksgiving. What did he tell them to do? Go eat good food. Joy is a choice. Just like guilt and worry are choices. Joy is a choice that we make when we decide, I'm going to celebrate, we're going to celebrate the goodness of God right now. And there are some things you do, if you're not feeling joyous, you can still activate joy by choosing to celebrate the goodness of God. And what happens when we're experiencing his joy in the moment is that those chains that bind us, that paralyze us, guilt and worry, they're severed. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord helps us overcome. It's joy, God's joy, that provides faith, energy, power for the journey. It's a journey that begins right now. It begins in this sacred moment. And 
as our Savior, who we know by faith will never leave us or forsake us. Now, now, listen. If you've placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're following him into the future, then you have been relieved of the paralyzing dysfunction of guilt because your sins are forgiven and the paralyzing perspective of worry because you know that God will never leave you or forsake you. He has forgiven you of the past. He will reveal his glory in the moment and lead you in the future. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what is going on around you, you're on the rise. You're on the rise because hope is alive. It's alive in you through the presence of Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord, that joy you choose, is your strength. Did you know that before Jesus died on the cross, was buried in that tomb, he had a meeting with his guys in the upper room, and he prayed. He prayed for himself, his relationship with God. He prayed for them, and he prayed for us. You know one of the things he prayed? That we would have a full measure of his joy. Now, I want you to think about that. Jesus, just hours from offering the ultimate sacrifice, his life, dying on the cross, he prayed that we would know the joy he knew in that moment. In that moment. Why? Where did the joy come from? Because he knew he was experiencing God's presence. He was connected with the Father. And he had chosen to be obedient to God's vision for his life wherever it led. Whatever it cost. That's where joy comes from. Choosing to submit, to trust God's wisdom, God's word, and God's way. It's a choice that we make in the moment. And when we choose joy, we experience his strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The guilt and the worry that comes from the enemy deplete strength. But when we place our faith and trust in God, he restores that strength with joy. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we're, we're so thankful for the truth of your word. 
We're so thankful, Lord, that from the beginning of scripture to the end, your word exhorts us, gives us all the reason in the world to trust you. Father, forgive us. We're, we're sorry when we live chained to the past. When we let guilt that you have relieved us of return. We're sorry, Lord, when we worry about the future. We're sorry, Lord, because we, we know that it's a declaration of mistrust, of faithlessness. And we want to live by faith. Father, if there's anyone in this room or watching online today that does not know you, has not experienced the joy of conversion, I pray that today they would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which means that they would believe that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried, and then three days later, raised from the dead. Grace them with faith, Lord. And for those of us who believe, Father, I pray that you would set us free from those chains that bind us, in particular guilt and worry, so that we can live in joy in this sacred moment and see your glory. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray.